Hello fellow aviators, welcome to another episode of JPL Aviation, where leadership and aviation take off. Today we have with us Trisha Vernola, who started off her aviation journey with her private pilot's license. From there, she ended up going to the 135 charter end, and she was at Summit Aviation, West Coast Aviation, and now is the Vice President of Charter at FBO Jets. Welcome, Trisha. Thank you. How are you doing today? I'm doing well. How are you? Fantastic. It's a great day to talk about aviation, right? Every day is a great day to talk about aviation. So let's kind of just get started as how you got into, into aviation. Like, what's kind of your journey? Um, frankly, from the time I was a toddler, I was always staring at the sky looking at airplanes, and I'd beg my parents to take me to the airport. I'm local, so we'd go to John Wayne all the time, and we'd park on top of the terminal, and we'd sit there and watch the planes until my parents' eyes were glazing over. Um, so it was always something I wanted to do in the back of my mind. I always thought I'd love to fly. Um, I think growing up though, you didn't see women flying often. So it, it was definitely something I wanted to do, but I never really pursued it because I just figured it wasn't something that I was going to end up being able to do for whatever reason. Um, but then I got into my twenties and it became something that I couldn't stop thinking about. I just... It was such a passion for me. I mean, I was staying up late at night reading, you know, pilot blogs and watching YouTube videos of crosswind approaches. There and you it go. Just, <laughs> I honestly just, it's like a bug that bites you. So um, I decided nothing will stop me. And I actually had three little kids at the time. It was going through a divorce, but I thought, you know what, this is the best time to do it. I, I wanted the intellectual stimulation of learning something new and... Um, so I started doing, um, you know, the private pilot training, and that kind of just sparked the whole journey of where I'm at now, uh, seven years later. And did you have anybody growing up that was involved in the aviation that you, like, kind of looked to, or was it just all on your own? Yeah, not really directly. Um, I have a distant cousin. It was, like, my, a first cousin of my mom's who was the chief pilot for Hawaiian Airlines, um, but he's always been based in Hawaii, so I actually have never, I never met him. But other than that, no real direct connection to anybody else in any type of aviation. So you said you were in your mid-20s when you first um, started getting into aviation aspect of your private pilot training? or Yeah, late, the late 20s that? actually. Late 20s. Yeah. And so when did you actually start with that? It's 29 when I started private pilot training. And how did that come about? Um, like I said, it kind of was just eating away at me. I... I had the, the time and the financial means to do it, so I decided just to do it, um, and nothing was going to stop me from doing it. Did you it. go to a local flight school in the area? or? Yep. I went through Sunrise Aviation. Um, I basically just did a little bit of Yelp research, like we all do with restaurants and whatnot, um, and everybody had nice things to say about it, and it kind of was that cozy little mom-and-pop feel, which I liked. Um, so... That's where I started, and then, funny enough, you know, I ended up marrying my flight instructor however many years later. There you go. <laughs> so that's, that's always a fun part of the story that people seem to enjoy. <laughs> and um, so as you're going through your private pilot training, what were some things that you faced obstacles-wise, and how did you kind of approach it? Um, I wouldn't really say there were many obstacles other than, um, like I said, I was kind of at a, my personal life was a little busy. I had three very young boys, um, was going through a divorce, and I had also gone back to school full time. So I was trying to juggle all of that um, with the flying and, and the ground study. And I was going maybe once a week, once every other week for the first six months. And that really hurt me as far as making progress because... Um, I just had to keep getting reacquainted with the airplane. Like the fundamental stuff was just taking so long because I 
you know, I wasn't there all the time. So I cut down my school load because I wasn't going to stop flying. I said, you know what, the school thing can wait or be dumbed down a little bit, but I, I need to get more into the flying. It was just a craving I had. And I started going three days a week. And once I went three days a week, I just blew through the training. It was really easy to retain everything that way. And um, that the only real obstacle was those first six months. I just was so busy that I, I, I wasn't making enough time to actually fly. Um, but once I went regularly, then... It was. It just all came together really, really seamlessly. And how did you end up setting up that schedule between family life, three kids, and your pilot training? Um, it wasn't too bad. I wasn't working at the time, so I was very blessed and grateful to not have to work. Um, so basically, spent all my free time studying and taking care of my children. There you go. So it seems like it was just a, a definitely easier route, but at the same time, it was still a lot of work because. I it think a being lot. a mom is definitely one of the most important things you can do in life, and it takes a lot of energy. It was a lot. I I remember drinking coffee at 1 o'clock in the morning and doing a navigation log for a flight <laughs> the next day because my you know one-and-a-half-year-old was getting out of bed in the middle of the night and wandering the hallways, and I was just like, what am I doing? You know, I have to fly tomorrow, and I'm so sleep-deprived already, but you just do it. You know, you just it's, if something you want badly enough, you do it. It'll happen, 100%. It's yeah. with anything you do in life, right? Definitely. <laughs> so yeah. as you're um, going through your private pilot training, um, what were some notable experiences that you may have had? Um, Being a – because it's different for everybody, right? It, let me frame this for you. So, for example, there's people who come straight out of high school and they go to college and they're automatically doing aviation. You kind of built your life before you started getting into aviation. Yeah. So what was that like at that stage of your life? Because in my like ground schools and stuff that I have, you see older people in the ground schools who they have different reasons for getting their license. Yeah. It um my initial goal actually was to become a CFI while my kids were still young enough that they needed me around a lot and just kind of make myself available while they were at school and part of the weekends and stuff like that and then get into some type of corporate flying I just have always had a love for the corporate equipment you know I love I'm not really hugely into you know airline size yeah. I mean they're they're beautiful and they serve <laughs> their purpose but they're more or less like cattle haulers to me yeah pretty much so I really love the um you know the the, the business jets and so that was that was my goal but um the more I got into aviation, the more I made friends in aviation, the more I saw people go through the, you know, sequence of your ratings and then maybe you instruct or maybe you start a small commercial job and then they get into 135 and they have they have no quality of life. Yep. And I just being a mom with little kids, I, I couldn't do that. I couldn't do that to my kids. But for, yeah, young single guys or even young guys that are married, it was it's, it's a different thing. But to have that, you know, no schedule and be on call all the time and not know when you're coming or going, that that just seemed too difficult. They so. say the best pilots are young and single, right? <laughs> <laughs> well, I, I think you can, anybody can be a good pilot. But as far as, you know, getting into, you know, a job like that, if it just didn't seem like feasible if I wanted to be a present mother. Yeah, 100%. Sometimes so. life, life gets in, not in the way, but priorities change and that's okay. Yeah, no, I mean, it's it is what it is. I'm I'm still doing something that I enjoy um a lot and uh I would love to be flying more, but I will be getting back to that. So That's a goal. That's all you need, right? Is yeah. a direction to to keep yourself going and Yeah. So, what was your first paid aviation job? 
first paid aviation job. It was a small startup company out of Long Beach Airport. Um, it was a flight school, and they this also was Summit Aviation, correct? Summit Aviation. Um, they're still relatively small. They've. Um, I'm not. I, I'm not really keeping up on what they're doing now. That was several years ago. Um, but basically, I was just doing a little hodgepodge of things. So scheduling and scheduling the maintenance for the aircraft, um, looking into some sales and acquisition, um, sales of hangar space. It was just a small little general aviation kind of multifaceted job. That makes sense. And yeah. um, so what was the process for, let's talk about the maintenance end of things. Um, you, How many aircraft were you scheduling at the time? Uh, six. And those were what ranges from like, Cessnas to big jets or what was kind no, of no the they were just mostly training aircraft there was like a 150 a 172 um have you ever heard of a sky catcher i have not you're lucky <laughs> it's terrible in what aspect it's just not a very marketable airplane in uh, my opinion. okay um Let, let's let's dive into that what <laughs> makes an airplane not marketable is it just the payload was terrible um, it had some glass, but that just seems like overkill for an airplane like that. Um, Is it a, it's a smaller airplane, kind of like Cessna size or? It's basically, if I remember correctly, cause it's been a while, um, and this all becomes an amalgam to me after a while with <laughs> yeah, it, yeah. you know, I deal with hundreds and hundreds of different airplanes and quotes and yep. specs on the, on the daily, but um, it's essentially kind of it was it was a not well selling um, like light sport. Yeah, that makes sense. Yeah. yeah. Um, it was not easy to control. It was not fun to fly. <laughs> um, Sounds good. I trained <laughs> I trained in a Czech light sport called um, in a vector sports star. I've heard ever. of those. Yes. Yeah. So the reason why I would say that's a marketable airplane is because. Um, it's very nimble, very agile, very easy to control, very almost overly responsive, which can be frustrating at times when you're when you're learning. Hold your altitude. Oh, I'm trying. Yeah, it's just you put. Like, it was like one little input, and you get such a big response, which got annoying when yeah. you're really trying to like have finesse mm -hmm. with flying. Um, but it burns like three or four gallons of fuel an hour. Oh, that's perfect. Yeah. So, but it's a little putt putt. I mean, going like 90 max, 90 knots max. I got, I got a tailwind coming back from my first solo cross country and I had the plane at idle and it was going like 110 knots. There you go. So doing well, <laughs> just putting across the sky. Yeah. Um, but I mean, it was fun. It's, it serves its purpose for sure. But I couldn't say that about the sky catcher. I just, there was something about that plane. There was a rub between us. We just didn't like each other. <laughs> so. And so when you're scheduling the maintenance for these smaller planes at the flight school, um, what was kind of the process for that? Were you just like, did you look at the maintenance records that they gave you and said, okay, I need to schedule dates here, here, here. Were you kind of like coordinating everything or can you kind of describe the process for that? I don't have a whole lot to say about that. Yeah. Um, be kind of mundane. Yeah, just pretty, pretty straight up, pretty basic, as fundamental as you could get scheduling I, I was only there for six months so. that, that makes sense yeah. so um your time at summit aviation how did that transition next occur to west coast um they had always been on my radar them and jet suite who they've since moved out to dallas but um you know they i knew a lot about 
each company's um, fleet, their business model. Um, they were close to me, you know, geographically. So um, I just actually had applied at West Coast before, interviewed me. It was between me and one other person. They chose somebody that already had charter experience, yep. which I kind of expected that to happen. Mm-hmm. I figured being home so many years with my kids and not having a lot of or really any aviation experience, even though I had you know, a pilot's license and I had done flying and I had a lot of knowledge and several parts of the industry just based on the amount of, you know, reading that I've done over yep. the last, you know, 10, 15 years. Um, but that's not enough. I mean, it's You got to have the, the real daily experience, you know, say real. I was at this company for X years and yeah. I did this job, right? But it's like, and some of these positions are considered entry level, but yep. you they still want to see experience yep. before they bring you in. So it just seemed so, it was like a catch 22. Um, so I kind of had to bank on my personality being likable and the fact that I was really driven and um, ready to work hard and, and love to learn and already did know a lot. I just had to I had to find someone that would give me the chance to show them how much I did know already. So I actually called West Coast back after six months, and I said, are you guys looking for anybody? And they said, well, we actually are, and why don't you come in next week and interview? And I did, and they called me the next morning, and they hired me on the spot. There you go. Made me an offer. Um, So everything kind of fell into place that way. Um, That was a good experience because I did so much there from managing 91 aircraft to the fractional share program to um, quoting retail clients and other brokers on our fleet and then outsourcing if we didn't have – um, an aircraft to cover the trip request. So there wasn't any formal training. When I when I got there, there was so much going on and so much chaos and disorganization in the office that I kind of had to fend for myself. And um, it was actually good because I think you just kind of, you find your own groove when you have to train yourself at times adapting right it's a whole new a whole new environment coming up and you have no idea what's going on and then you kind of dissect each piece and figure out okay this is my role in the company yeah i mean it as frustrating as it could be sometimes because as you know aviation especially with charter it's such a i mean ever-changing i mean yeah, it's, it's it's a adapt and survive, right? Yeah, in an hour you could go from everything being hunky-dory to, I mean, we'd have sometimes multiple mechanicals in a day. You know, those those King Airs that they ran for their fractional program was, they, I mean, they had a ton of cycles on them. So they were breaking down all the time, and then you're trying to outsource the flight and find it for the cheapest recovery possible, you know, because we're eating that cost as the operator. We don't pass that on to the, the share owner because they – they're yeah. bound to a contract that guarantees nothing nothing extra showing up, right? Yeah, I mean they 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 pay a contracted rate based on I think it's from what I remember most of them um it was like a 12 and a half percent buy-in and then there was like a month, a pretty hefty monthly management fee and then they paid actuals um and this is just for chartering the airplane, right? That's just that was just for the fractional, fractional for share. the king airs. The rest of the fleet was just a regular charter. So we had wholesale rates. We had retail rates. Um, fairly nominal difference hourly between the two, in my opinion. Um, 
So, so what would you say from your perspective, since you've been doing this, um, between wholesale and retail, as a person who's investing in jets, what do you think is the better option to go? Um, well, every, in a way, every everybody's getting retail unless you're working through a broker. So um, now that I'm on the brokering side, you know, I'm getting the wholesale, I'm getting the net net price, and then I put profit on it, whatever I decide is appropriate. And then I tax it, and then I offer that all-in price to the client. Um, whereas if you're working an operator and you have a retail client, typically some people have set pricing. They just have one hourly on the plane, and they'll give that price um, to the broker without the FET. Yeah. But if you FET have FET is just the federal excise know. tax. Okay. Seven and a half percent of the total. And then, um, but if you have a retail client. You know, you you could easily. It's hard to say because I, I think every company does things a little bit differently. It's depending on the situation as well, right? Yeah, but I mean, you'll typically you'll see like retail pricing. Um, it might be a little bit higher, and then they give that price with um, the taxes all included. So. And so when you're you're scheduling these, how much of uh, how much were you involved in the actual scheduling of the aircraft as they're flying around and moving? So are you talking about still at West Coast? Charters? Uh, or did, were you doing that at West Coast or no? Yes. So at West Coast, how much were you involved in that process? Like the dispatch? Yes. So say, for example, someone frame it as someone knows that there's private jets and they fly all over the country. But what happens in between legs? How do they actually get the clients on the jet from start to finish? What's kind of the process of from a scheduling end making sure all that happens? So that's kind of what... We did. I mean, we definitely had we had a logistics team. Um, so if there were any issues in flight, a lot of that would go through logistics. But we all worked in the same office, and when you know what hit the fan, we all kind of had to. It was like all hands on deck. Yeah. So if you know there's a mechanical or there's um, you know we we had an old very elderly couple that flew regularly to Aspen, and the pilots, as usual, were very diligent about checking the weather. But in route, they ended up, you know, having to divert because, you know, the mountainous areas, yep. they can kind of change on a dime mm-hmm. weather-wise. Um, and, you know, these people are really old and don't deal with change well. And so we're scrambling, trying to figure out a way to get a rental car to the FBO at the alternate airport before they land. Otherwise, they're going to be stranded and it was kind of snowy and it just little things like that, you know, would but- come up. Yeah, that makes sense. And you're, you're trying to coordinate and schedule this as things are happening, right? You're you're watching the, the the wheel roll down the hill, and you're trying to stop it before it like it keeps going down the hill. Yeah, and these king ears, like they don't have Wi-Fi. I mean, now that I'm a broker, I'm dealing with. I mean, the majority of the aircraft I put my clients on, you know, a lot of them are are Wi-Fi equipped. So I'm in constant communication with the client, or sometimes the flight attendant, um, the sometimes the crew, or the operators in constant contact with the crew. Um, I mean, they have satellite phones and stuff, but yeah, nowadays it's like with some of the newer, larger aircraft, you have the Wi-Fi, so it's like you're always connected. And you can emphasize on how important that communication is between the people back in the office and the people on the plane for any scheduling issues. Yeah, I mean, it's it's a double-edged sword, really, because sometimes there's too many hands in the pot. Sometimes there's a situation that needs to be rectified, and you've got. You've got the pilots, and uh, their main job is to fly the plane. Yep. But depending on their personality level, sometimes their emotions got in the way, or yeah. their, their level of involvement wasn't always helpful or appropriate. Yeah. Um, 
And then same in the office. So you've got the charter people, and then you've got management, and then you've got the logistics team. And um, sometimes if you had the right group of people, maybe say three people max, things got figured out really nicely. But sometimes if everybody got involved, it there's a, a communication barrier in a yeah. way. Like It's like playing telephone. You know, stuff gets misconstrued and people disagree on how to handle a situation. Um, but, you know, at the end of the day, we're all trying to protect the trip and the client. And that, it's, and this is within the office itself too, right? Like this, just, is, this is a physically in the office. Yeah. Um, so, of course, you're dealing with office politics. Every office has them. <laughs> all right. Yeah. I don't miss that yeah. at all. Um, just any work environment, there's, there's going to be stress. It's a very, it's a very stressful environment just because of what you're dealing with you're dealing with people that have the means to spend thousands and thousands and thousands of dollars on a single flight yep. and you want to cater to them it's perfection you, you're shooting for perfection every time you sell a flight you're shooting for perfection um you want to go above and beyond their expectations you want them to remember you you want them to come back to you even though i couldn't take real ownership working an operator of these clients they didn't belong to me i still felt like I owned part of that because the whole process from quoting and sometimes negotiating and taking care of someone's sometimes absolutely wacky request just to make them happy. I yep. mean, I had a guy that wanted a humongous Costco-sized container of animal crackers on the plane really? every time he flew. <laughs> and it was like the I, assistant was always texting me like the day before, like, don't forget the animal crackers. I mean, this is like, he's like an elderly guy that just loves to eat animal crackers when he flies. Animal crackers are the most fantastic snack I had growing up, so I can totally relate. I know. I mean, bless him, right? <laughs> like, he knows what he likes. He's spending so much money on a trip. Like, of course. But it's like little things like that. I mean, you really do. It's kind of almost like being a personal assistant. And but. so when you were, inter you were directly interacting with these clients, it sounds like, as well, at West Coast? Yeah, actually, that was the cool thing was because they were all local. Um, I, after about a year there, I made it a point to make time to go out into the FBO and see some of the trips off and shake some of these people's hands that you talk to on the phone or email um, and you have a good rapport with them. But it's really nice to just actually be face to face sometimes. And it goes a long way. hundred percent. In business aviation, the, the people aspect is everything because you have to establish what's the difference between you and some other company that just goes off and uh, sells them the flight. It's the people from start to finish who interact with them and give them the opportunity to know the company, and those people represent the values of that company as well. Um, and so that's why when you say you go off and you shake the hands of the people, like, hey, I emailed you the other day. You were the, I was the person you were working with. Thank you so much for the time that you've invested with me, and I hope you have a great flight. Yeah. That little segment alone means so much with people, and that's anything you do in life. If that could be like with your kids, you know, they they come home for the day, and you you tell them like, you know, hey, how was your day, blah blah. That to a child means so much more because it shows the authentic, like, hey, I care about you. Yeah, well, except for my kids are like, do you have to ask us that every <laughs> single day? <laughs> yeah, well, that that happens for most ages growing up, but yeah, um, but you're right. I mean, the the human factor is huge. Um, obviously price is always a variable, but people like to feel cared about. Um, so of course, and I, and I love people, I love people and I love airplanes. So this is why I've been doing this and this is why I'm doing what I'm doing now with, bro with brokering because there's a lot more, um, it's just different now. This is like 
I, I own all of this. Yep. I, from start to finish, no one else has their hand in it except me. So I'm fully responsible for the proper care and feeding of my client every time they fly. Yep. Um, and it goes such a long way. And it, I don't know if you wanted to talk more about the charter company or get more into the brokering and how. Yeah, sure. What it, um, let's start off with the, the brokering from start to finish. Kind of what's your, your first off, what's your thought process of approaching a client? Do you, do you just go out and do they find you or do you find them? Um, well, the short answer is, um, unless you join a brokerage with your own book of business, you're, you're out cold, like sourcing basically. (laughs) Um, definitely when I started with my company, I was, you know, given some tips and tools, um, to connect with people. Um, but it's really about how much time you put in and something as simple as, you know, how you word an email. I'm I'm really comfortable on the phone with people once I know them, but for me, like getting on the phone with somebody and I, I don't like to be salesy. I'm not salesy Hard and pitch. I <laughs> I think that's why I've been successful is because I'm not I try not to be salesy. Mm-hmm. I try to just be cool with you. Um I care about people. I care about what they're about, what they do, what their interests are. Um and I've you know I've I'm it's like a friendship level that I have with a lot of my clients now. And, you know, sometimes like I, I've, I send blast emails. I, I can hit 60,000 people in a day with empty legs that I have or one ways or transient availability. Like if I know, you know, I've got a 800 XP sitting transient in Orlando. I've got a G4 in Teterboro. I've got Falcon 2000 in Van Nuys. I can reach out to these people all day long, every day. Um, but the most business that I have gotten as a broker has been from organically sourcing a client and then they refer me to their friends. Um, they refer me to their colleagues. I've one of my first clients was a, an NBA player who still like we're buddies. Now we text all the time. There you go. (laughs) Um, he was happy with my services, and so he started referring other NBA players to me. And all of a sudden, it's like you go from hardly having any clients to you've got like six guys that play professional basketball calling you for a flight in one summer. And the lady that manages his money at Morgan Stanley, she was the one that was kind of, um, you know, we'd be in contact over the wire or some of the trip logistics or whatever or if I had to go back and bill incidentals like catering or whatnot, um, you know, and she was like, oh, you know, I really like working with you. You're easy to work with. And then next thing you know, she's got another client that she manages the finances for and they need a jet. And so she's like, oh, I know this girl that, you know, does the flights for some of my other clients and I'll ask her for a quote. And that's really how the business has grown is, you do a good job a couple times with somebody and they start, it's just word of mouth. I mean, it's, it's, that's been more fruitful for me than all the cold emailing. Don't get me wrong. You have to do it. And that is how I've gotten people. I mean, I literally sent a cold email to an NBA agent and three weeks later, they're on the plane. Three weeks later, he asked me for the trip. So, you know, you think you hit these people, they're going to come back to you right away. Yeah. Well, sometimes they do. And sometimes they don't. And that's part of why it's hard to make it as a broker because you have to, it's just a numbers game. You have to constantly be reaching out. Even if it's the same people 
all the time, even if you're hitting these people once a week. I mean, I hate doing it. Yeah, Nobody, it's like, you know, you're like, oh, if they see this again and they're hating it, like, I'm totally ruining their day right now. <laughs> yeah, and you do get the people, you know, that, I mean, they'll tell you to F off. Yeah. They'll say unsubscribe in huge letters. Every so often you'll get, you know, um, a very nice person that says, you know, I appreciate you reaching out, but please take me off your list. Yep. And, and I'm like, absolutely, because I get that. Nobody wants to be sold something. I mean, they really don't. If you're actually in the market and you find somebody that you enjoy working with, that's different. But it's a lot of reaching out to people who, at that time, they may not need you. And, and people do get annoyed by that. And so you have to just kind of deal with that early on. Relationships not- between your client and you are very important. And then the way the client views you uh, will allow them to go and tell other people if it's a positive review is what it sounds like. Yeah, but I mean, you have to really, you have to have a hard shell exterior when you get into this business because if you start taking stuff personally, then you just can't be successful. You just kind of have to detach from it. So at first I was like, well, I don't want to like email the same Goldman Sachs guys like yeah. every single week, you know, like that's going to annoy them. Well, you have to annoy them if you ever want to make money because yeah. eventually, yeah, they do. Because that one time where they keep rejecting you, keep rejecting you, and then they actually need a flight from point A to point B, and they're like, well, I mean, this person is still emailing me, still being consistent. I guess we'll give her a try. And next thing you know, they're on your flight. Hey, they actually ended up having a fantastic experience. Through this fantastic experience, they go, hey, you know, this, this company does a really good job. And, well, bam, you've already created um, more investments. Yeah, I mean, it. It's it's a simple model, but it's not easy when you're like in the abyss of, oh my gosh, I've emailed, you know, five thousand people this week, and I got, you know, thirty percent of those emails got bounced back to me. Server rejected them. Um, sometimes the emails aren't good. Sometimes my emails will just get rejected because the, you know, the server recognizes it as junk know. or spam or whatever. And yeah. yeah, that happens. Um, and you've got people that will thank you and say, I'll keep you in my contacts for when I do need you. And those are the people you have to continue to follow up with because sometimes that does turn into something. But getting started is it's it can be pretty horrific because you're really on your own. I mean, you you're you're just out there basically trying to capitalize on somebody that's already flying, but that's going to stop flying with another broker or another operator to give come you, to you a yep. shot. Um, but there is so much fluidity with that. I mean, my boss had a very famous person that he flew for a long time. Yeah. It was his biggest account. Well, he wanted spaghetti on his return flight from New York to L.A. And he didn't show up at the plane when he said he was going to be there. And the cabin server had heated the, the, the pasta up and had it ready for him. Well, he never showed up. So then an hour went by and... They're texting, you know, with the client. Oh, yeah, I'm on my way. I'll be there soon. So they heat the pasta up again. Well, he still didn't show up. So the pasta gets heated up a third time and subsequently cooled down again, and he's still not there. And she was like, I can't heat it again. Like, it's it's not going to be edible. So he shows up at the plane, and he gets on the plane and sees that his pasta is cold and makes this seething phone call to my boss and just let him have it. And that was it. He never saw him again. This is somebody that they thought they had a good relationship. He made money off of him. He was always a happy client. 
Um, it could be as simple as a plate of spaghetti and you lose a huge account and use a huge part of your income. Yeah, do the small things right every time, correct? Yeah, well, that's the thing. It's You're dealing with very unreasonable expectations at times. And I, I don't always know if that has anything to do with the demographic. Like the this type of clientele, yes, they can be higher maintenance. But conversely, I see so many kind, humble people that have private jet money. Yep, 100%. Um, so it's really a crapshoot, but it's as simple as you can lose your client over you know, a very super small, a small catering issue. Um, and, and you can easily gain a client by sending one single email or doing a trip that's well-priced and goes over seamlessly for some person. And they're so thrilled that they start referring you to their friends and colleagues. And then all of a sudden your business grows. Do the little things right. Yeah. Well, always. Obviously the client interaction is very important as we just discussed. So if we can, let's dive back into your transition from West Coast to FBO Jets, where you are now. How did that kind of come about? Um, It was not an immediate transition. I actually uh, left West Coast when I was um, about six months pregnant with my fourth child. Um, It just was the best decision at the time. We knew the baby was going to be born with some health problems. Um, So work just kind of went on the back back burner for me. Um, and then when he was about seven or eight months old, I just happened to have, um, a Facebook connection with one of the brokers that I used to actually do some trips with. Um, and he was from FBO jets and he, and I didn't have any sort of friendship really. It was just more of just like a random business connection, you know, like sometimes you just add these people on your social media, as you know. Um, and he actually posted on Facebook that he was looking for somebody to help expand their business. And my first thought was, oh my gosh, I'd be so good at that. <laughs> so the, the key takeaway here is Facebook ads do work. <laughs> well, it wasn't even an ad. He was, he was just kind of, you know, he had gotten to the point where he was so busy with his own clients that he couldn't field any more incoming requests like he he's just so busy Mm -hmm. and I can you know go into how he got into this business which is very fascinating go for it um because obviously it was a a, his role in your transition was obviously huge correct yeah I mean well it's like we you and I talked about earlier I think off camera off microphone um the way that different people find their way into aviation is it's really intriguing Um, I feel like a lot of people fall into it. And for me, this has always been something. I knew I wanted to do something with it. And I've kind of had to fine-tune that over the years based on what was going on in my personal life or whatever my limitations and capabilities were. Like, in that moment, in that season of my life, like, what was going to work the best for me? Right now, what I'm doing is working the best for me, and I really enjoy it. But um, when I started talking to, who's now my boss, um about his background and how he got into this, I assumed based on just how he, how he's wonderful with people. He's, he really has a way with people. Um, he just seemed like somebody that was part of the industry for a long time and, and his roots were planted deeply from the get go. And he just kind of took off and made a really lucrative career for himself. Well, actually that's not what happened. Um, he went to college on a tennis scholarship and then he started teaching tennis lessons at a country club. And he was teaching tennis lessons to a guy um, who had started a brokerage in Florida years ago. 
And they kind of became buddies. And after a few months of instructing him, the student, tennis student, was like, there is something about you. I really think you'd be an amazing jet broker. And that's the short part of the story. Basically, they just hit it off. And they they brought him on. It was it was just um, it was him and one other guy that started the brokerage. They had both done um, some brokering for other companies way back when, 20 plus years ago, and decided this is something we could you know do on our own. That's kind of how FBO Jets was launched. So just these two guys. Um, they had, you know, some resources and tricks of the trade under their belt, and they knew how the business worked. And, um, you know, once they got busy, uh, they brought my boss on, and um, he just crushed it. I mean, amazing. We're talking huge celebrity accounts and just m- musicians. the transactions that were happening just kind of blew you away. So it sounds like. Yeah, but I mean, somebody he was he was just you know. He was a guy that was instructing tennis at a country club, and he ended up becoming this very successful, you know, charter broker. Um, and it's just so cool to see, like, that you can you can come from all walks of life, but if this is really where you're meant to be, like, you end up there, and you become really passionate about it. He's kind of evolved into who he is now, and it doesn't matter where you came from. In aviation, you can become anything you want to. Yeah, and you have to be passionate. I feel in this industry, to be successful um, and to serve other people well, you have to be really passionate about it. Um, and to be honest, you also have to have some fundamental knowledge. Uh, not to go back with being on the operational side of things, but I noticed that I was the only charter person that had any kind of flying experience and, um, having fundamental knowledge about very simple things like aircraft range, you know, performance, temperature, elevation relationship, um, that helps me be able to create, you know, an offer for someone with the right type of aircraft and, you know, based on, whatever the trip looks like, what airports they're going to use. I was working with people that were not um, trained to look at an airport and see if they had published weather or if they had an ILS or if they had um, jet fuel. I mean, because with with Charter, you're getting, you know, we're taking like, you know, VLJ equipment, you know, like little Citation M2s and things like that, King Airs, into these really tiny fields. And, um, you know, depending on the trip, like, you know, it's not really like a prudent thing to do to land somewhere without fuel. It can be done, but, but it's there's not the best idea. Well, some of the trips, you know, they they it just wasn't going to work. But we had actually a few times, you know, sold a trip, and the person that facilitated everything didn't double check on the airport, and sometimes even the pilot didn't. And then they'd find out the day of the flight. Well, we can't actually use this airport, and this is where the client had been banking on going the whole time. So the point of the story is it pays to have, and these aren't things that are difficult to learn. I mean, you certainly don't have to have a pilot's license to understand everything, but it does help a lot to be able to understand, like, when you're dealing with mountainous airports and elevation and and temperature and, um, you know, aircraft performance, all that stuff. Like, it's good to have a little bit of a grip Background. on it. Especially because what I've seen talking, talking to corporate pilots is that there seems to be a major disconnect between the pilots themselves and the, the you know, the gals in the office who are scheduling everything sometimes because the, the guys 
have a idea of what a trip is going to be like in their head. And then in the office end, they kind of have these super high expectations, how everything's going to go perfectly. And they don't take all the factors, like you said, into account. And it creates this, this tension within the company that I ultimately think lowers morale um, for everybody around them. Totally. And that's honestly, that can all be fixed by just increasing communication. Sometimes you have to be redundant. I know that can get really annoying for people involved on either end. Um, And sometimes too many hands in the pot, like I said earlier, that creates a lot of issues. But if you have good, concrete, efficient communication between the crew and the charter office all the time, then you really lessen the um, potential issues that can come up. But that's been, I think, a very hard thing for people to master because you're dealing with so many different personality types, hence very different communication types. Um, So... Just depending on who you are as a person, will it, it, it really kind of tells the story of how you're going to communicate in a situation. And it can sound like a completely different scenario. Based, it can be the same scenario, but sounds so different to base, based on who you're talking to about it. So going back to the brokering you know, part, I think that was something that um, when I saw how successful he was and he was actually interested in bringing me on, and he brought me on sight unseen. So they're based in Florida. Um, they don't go into an office. Everybody's remote. But that is where the company address is based. And that's where the other brokers live. And at the time when they hired me, it was just the three of them. And so basically what happened was the the one that hired me, um, he became a partner. And then I could, took over the, the vice president role. So really the whole objective was for me to, you know, um, to move you gen- up so that he teaches you everything, move you up so that way he has less of a burden with the company? or um, Not so much teach me. I mean, definitely he had some things he wanted to share with me that he thought were helpful in gaining new business. But it, the whole purpose was to bring me on to generate new business and help grow the company because they wanted to keep growing, but he was kind of at his capacity as far as he could not take on any new business. He just, I mean, it's hard to say no to more money, right? But you can't manage any more than you already have. I mean, he's sometimes doing, you know, two trips a day and all the logistics that go into that with the communication between either the client themselves directly or their agent or their personal assistant or whoever it is that's facilitating the flight. Um, and you get really needy people. You get some very, very needy people. Um, you know, I've, I've got some clients that it's just every single time we do a trip, it's like, I get 30 questions and it's like the same questions. And some of these people are afraid to fly. Um, sometimes they freak out about cabin dimensions and we're talking like a very, you know, marginal difference, like, you know, four or five inches, which I guess in an aircraft cabin, deal, that man. can be a big deal. But um, standing up to having walked through hunched over for somebody is a big, big deal. Well, height wise. Yes. But like width wise, you know, yeah, sometimes it, we're just, yeah, we're dealing with a lot of, a lot of the same questions, even though these people have been told the same thing before. And then other people, they're just like so low maintenance. Um, they don't argue with you about the price. They don't argue with you. They just want to know, can I get from point A to point B? Can I use this airport instead of that airport? Um, what kind of plane is it and what's it going to cost me? I mean, you, you do see that. You don't see that as often. Pretty much always you're going to see more questions. And I don't get annoyed because I think to myself, if I was in this position, if I had the type of money to travel this way, you do expect things to go off without a hitch. 
you do expect your needs to be catered to. And that's perfectly fine. That's why we're here. Yep. Um, but yeah, so anyway, I don't know. I think I got off on a tangent. You're good. You're good. Um, so what were we talking to about before You're, that? So you, um, how, how you transitioned through FBO and you kind of said the guy was the main role for you and he told his story. Um, but so as you're coming on to FBO Jets, um, how did you apply those principles that we talked about um, in your new position? Like what were some of the responsibilities you had at FBO Jets now and what were you doing um, with so, the clients? Um, they, the, one of the industries that we were trying to, uh, gain a little more activity from was the music industry. So that was definitely a bullet point on, you know, my rappers in the jets, right? <laughs> Those are not, they're not even worth it. Really? They're, they're, it's such a headache. Cause sometimes they do stuff from the plane. And it's just like, uh, the drug use on yeah. the planes is, and I, I'm, probably shouldn't give too much information <laughs> um but yeah it's it's one of those things it's like you don't really want to deal with the accounts that are just going to cause more problems for you there's always going to be headaches yep. with private aviation it's just how it is there's always going to be a headache um it's rare that a trip always goes off totally perfectly but i, well, I shouldn't say it's rare but it's you know little things do come up here and there when you're dealing with um certain groups of people that um and this, I'm not, and this is not any particular one group, but you do deal with some people, um, famous or not, that don't have a lot of respect for the aircraft. Yep. Um, they feel like because they purchased it and rented it for, you know, an hour and a half that it's automatically theirs, you know? Yeah. I mean, but really, if that's how they even felt, why abuse something? Because if that was their multi million dollar asset, would they, they, they yeah. would they, would they be, you know, no, they they treat it like their own Lambo, you know. <laughs> yeah, it's 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 weird for me to see somebody that's a grown adult that's become successful. Um, they were wise enough somehow to make themselves successful, but still be so disrespectful towards someone else's asset. It's really mind-boggling, but you do see that. Um, and so, what do you personally do when those situations come up? Like, what's kind of your approach for dealing with clients who you may have they you know they may have kind of this um, rebellious streak in them per se. But what what's your kind of approach for dealing with people <coughs> like that? Um, you can't always predict it. So I've been surprised sometimes by um, what happened during the flight based on the reports that I got from other people afterward. Wasn't something that I was anticipating, um, but. Yeah, there's definitely been some situations where um, there you could just smell the trouble brewing before the trip even happened. And sure enough, you know, you've got people that are really entitled. And, you know, this guy showed up to – he was an artist. He showed up to a plane with the, with the bodyguard, his bodyguard, who had left his ID on an American Airlines flight. And he had not recovered his bag. And I was very explicit in telling all of them. If any of you do not have a valid form of ID, do not show up at the plane tonight because you won't be able to fly. Don't. It was already like an 11 p.m. departure. They were going to be tight on duty, and I didn't want to do that to the pilots. Um, but sure enough, I'm looking at the flight tracker, and it's been 45 minutes. It's been an hour. It's been an hour and 10. They haven't taken off yet. And I'm texting the person that was representing the flight. He wasn't actually flying, and he was just like, oh, you know, they're giving my buddy trouble. They won't let him on the plane. I said, is this the same guy that didn't show up with an ID? Yeah. Okay, well, I told you this morning, don't bother showing up because 
you don't want to put the pilots in that position. Legally, they're not going to land not allowed on the plane. To, yep. Yeah. So there's nothing anybody can do. It's not any different than going through TSA and getting on an airline. You have to show an ID. I don't know how many ways I can say that. Yeah. Um, and it turned into a fight with the pilots and the pilots threatening to pull the trip. And then I'm getting a call from the operator and they're upset with me because they think that I allowed this. Yeah. And I said, no, I actually very clearly told them this morning that if he doesn't get his ID back in time, that he needs to not be at the FBO. Um, So it was a situation that was a huge headache. It wasn't worth it for me. And I asked them politely to not, you know, work with me anymore. I am actually selective about who I work with. I want to make sure that it's mutually beneficial. Um... If it's going to put me in a bad position where my reputation's on the line with an operator who I have a good relationship with, yep. then I don't want to work with people like that. Um, Standard of excellence, right? Yeah, some brokers will work with whoever just because they know it's part of their paycheck. Um, but for me, I'd, I'd, it's all about quality over quantity. So we consider ourselves a boutique brokerage, and we are selective at who we work with. And there are people that we've actually on our end chosen to discontinue yep. the relationship with for, for various reasons. Um, it's just a lot easier that way. No hard feelings, but <laughs> no you, hard feelings, but you, no private jet for you. <laughs> yeah. Not through me at least. Yeah. I, I'm not going to put my, my reputation on the line. Um, it's just, I work too hard. And that. so when you're selling to these clients, um, what's kind of the process for that? Um, it depends. I mean, it's, it's a fairly simple process. We sometimes I'll get a request from somebody that I reached out to, um, or some, sometimes it's just a referral or, I mean, there's various ways that people end up finding their way to me. Um, but it's pretty simple. So you just give me your routes and your date and sometimes they want to see it quoted in um, a couple different, categories of aircraft other times it's just whatever gets me there cheapest and let's let's focus on that for a second so um when you're choosing different types of aircraft is it does the person often know coming in what they want or is that your job as the salesperson to say hey we have x amount of planes each one does something different you kind of explain that to them throughout the whole entire process or it, it runs the gamut depending on who you're dealing with. So there are a lot of guys I deal with that have been chartering for years, and they are very well-versed on the different types of um, airplanes. And I want to say that makes things easier, but it doesn't because they can get sometimes really overly picky. And it's like, well, I want this plane, but I want it to be at this price because I took this trip one time for this price. Yeah. And it's like, well... If they know that much about charter, then they know that positioning has everything to do with it. Yep. So if we're going to have to put you on that exact type of airplane, you want it for that price, then we have to see about that airplane being, you know, optim- optimally positioned to do that. And, and the company overall has to make a profit still on the flights. So. Well, it's, it's not just that. I mean, there's... What's available is what's available. I mean, I can go to the ends of the earth to find you the best price, but sometimes that's not going to be in the exact plane that you want. Most of the time, people are not that inflexible. Um, Every so often, I get someone that's super specific because they have a hang-up about, you know, being on a, you know, I don't know. It's weird, too, because sometimes they say, oh, this is my favorite type of jet. I'm like, really? (laughs) Okay. (laughs) Let me show you something else. Yeah. Um, So, yeah, the so I don't. 
I, I do have clients where I have to kind of go over the different categories. Um, that's pretty commonplace. And then there are some people that already know them quite well and know what they like. Yeah, so it just depends on the client. Um, most of the people that have done any kind of flying, they're, it, it really depends on their level of interest, too. Sometimes they just don't care to really know what the plane's called. They just want to make sure that it's safe, it fits enough people, and whether it goes nonstop or, or doesn't, those are the things that they care about. Um, so other than that, after that, after they tell me what they want, then I start sourcing and that's, um, you know, it's, it's actually really cool. People that don't, aren't familiar with brokering don't know how much access we have, um, to aircraft all around the world. Um, we use some special tools. We use Avinode and we use the, uh, MBA board to post requests or some operators will use it to sell legs that they have available. Um, and over time, you just get familiar with the different regions and who the operators are and, and, you know, what they have on their fleet and what kind of pricing they give. Are their aircraft transient? Do they have floating bases? Do they always have to return to home base? So everything is quoted as a round trip. It really just depends on who you're dealing with. Um, obviously, in the brokering world, you're dealing with some people that have homes, multiple homes all over the place. So yep. when I first started, I thought, gosh, what is with this one-way business? Like, <laughs> Why do these people want to go from New York to Florida and then, like, never go back? It was so what's bizarre so, to What's interesting about Florida, you know? <laughs> well, it's because yeah. they've got a house in New York and a house in Florida and a house in Aspen. And Summer, winter, spring, you know? <laughs> they, they stay for three, four, five weeks at a time or three months or... Oddly enough, you get you get people that will charter one way, but they like to take first class the other way. I don't know why I... It's just what they do. I do have clients that they have no shame in airlining, and and they do it. Um, it's totally fine. The thing that kills me is when I give somebody a price, and you know it's like a thirty-four thousand dollar trip, yeah. and they're like, "Well, I can do that first class for six hundred bucks." Yeah. Great. Well, we're comparing like you're not gonna get the lines. <laughs> you're not gonna get the TSA. You're gonna get your own spot wherever you want. Like yeah, it's you can't compare it. Yeah. It's not. It's not something that can be compared. I mean, you're you're talking. You know, it's. Do you get a warm bowl of pasta when you show up? No, <laughs> you know. <laughs> I mean, it's yeah. It's totally fine though. You you know, I'm not pushy with people. Like I said, um, obviously my job still is to sell, but. There are subtle ways to do that. I'm more about establishing a relationship with my clients first, getting them to like me, getting them to trust me, um, getting them to want to work with me. Like I said earlier, the human factor is huge. Um, there are a lot of shady brokers out there. They're just interested in getting you know, the cheapest option, maybe beating the operator down even more and sticking as much as they can get away with in the trip and not always about retaining the client. Yep. I'm about client retention because that is what over time is going to help my business grow. And it's going to continue Indirectly. it. Yeah. Yeah. Um, so I don't, I'm not in the business to rip people off. I'm not in the business to, you know, gouge you. I, I would so much rather have a relationship with you and know that you trust me to find you the best deal. So and sustainability is more important in the long term. Yeah. And it's, it's really, when I have people that text me and, and they're genuinely thankful and happy that we met, um, I feel like I've you You've know, done a good job. Okay. Okay. I've made it. You know, I, somebody that was really difficult at first, um, that can't comes back to you and says, you know, I'm so happy that 
we connected and I'm so happy to continue working with you and I'm going to send other people to you. I mean, that's, that's why we're here. We don't want them to be one-offs. We, we want them to returning customers. Yeah. We want them to, we want them to like, you know, we want them to love me long, long time. <laughs> there you go. <laughs> so yeah. So that, that part's great. Um, when you're selling these <clears throat> trips, um, what are the different options? Like, cause obviously there's, there's jet cards, there's uh, different business models that companies have to sell these types of trips. What are some tools and aspects you sell to these people coming in? So this is a difficult part of the industry for brokers is the competition with various types of jet card models. Um, it's brand recognition. So as you know, some of the large companies that have long been around offering these types of um, business models, it's a it's brand recognition. It's um, a level of comfort because they think, oh, it's like a one-stop shop for me. And of course... They have guarantees. The different companies have guarantees of when you can be wheels up in this aircraft category. Um, but the problem is they don't always realize, the clients, that I offer that exact same service. It's no different for me. If I want to work really hard at finding them an option to get them in the air in five or six hours, um, I'll do it. I've done it. I, I got called two weeks ago at 4 a.m. for an ASAP from LAX to Seoul, Korea. And it was actually an impossible flight to make happen, but you know, you do things to make it happen. You know, there's like landing permits in there that take three or four days to obtain. Find the loopholes. Found a loophole, found an operator that could get a permit by the next day so that they could actually have that permit to be wheels down in Korea, you know, at the time he needed to be there. But we actually launched the flight before that permit was granted. So that was a risk. Yeah. But hey, I'll sell you this plane. I don't have the plane yet, but I will by the time you purchase it, right? No, we had the plane, didn't have the permit. But I'm saying, like, metaphorically, it's like, right. Yeah. yeah, I mean, but it all works out and everybody's happy. Yeah, it was that was a crazy that's a story for another time. That's a story probably for a whiskey <laughs> 21 hours straight at my laptop trying to get that sorted out. Um, but yeah, so basically, um, the difference between the jet card and us is. I don't think most people realize that you actually can save a lot of money going through a broker. I think there's a misconception about using a broker and that it's a middleman, therefore the flight cost is going to be inflated um, or you're going to be ripped off or you're not going to find the best deal. And that's actually untrue depending on who you're dealing with. Um, going back to the jet cards. So for people that live in Iowa, Nebraska, even parts of the Pacific Northwest where you don't see a lot of charter aircraft based. They have to reposition those planes in anyway. So you're paying you're paying more to fly private. Yep. If you live near, you know, South Florida or LA or New York or even some parts of Dallas where there's a fair amount of, you know, charter aircraft, um you have access to these planes and they're optimally positioned for you if you want to go point to point or something close to that. Um, so the people that actually live in areas of the Midwest, that actually is a good model for them, the jet card, because you're already paying an inflated hourly rate. They already have reposition management probably maintenance fees kind of worked into these prices so you mm -hmm. see people paying like ten thousand dollars an hour for a citation 10. yep well operationally from New York to seattle in four hours 
but operationally, that aircraft does not cost anywhere near that yep. an hour. Um, but for people that just, you know, they're not, they're geographically not near charter aircrafts. It, it, it does make sense for them. But for people that live in areas where there are a lot of charter companies based or, or they live near an area where there's going to be floating um, airplanes, it's so much cheaper to actually go through a broker and find someone that will get you point-to-point pricing because it can be done almost every time. And that's the problem that we have as brokers is trying to wean these people off their jet cards, the people that don't actually need them. They're actually overspending by using the jet card. Just on based, of the, based on the use of and where they're located geographically that they're getting out of the aircraft? Yeah, I mean, well... I can typically save somebody 15 to 30% from what they would spend on a jet card. Sometimes they can't compete. I had a guy call me once. He wanted to go from, you know, Kansas City down to Nogales, Arizona. Not a good charter trip. You're you're just looking at a ton of reposition on the front end, on the back end, um in between, where does that plane go back to? Like it it was just so much repo that it, it made sense for him to just take his his one way on his jet card. And I told him that. I was like, I can't actually be cheaper on this. Um, even my very cheapest option with taxes was like $1,000 more. And that was with no profit at all for me for doing all that work. Yeah. Trying to find it. Mm-hmm. Um, so in that case, I'll be honest. I'll say, hey, you know, this is actually a really good fit for you. And no, I can't beat that. And people appreciate that honesty. And then those are the people that sometimes they'll still come back to you. Because they'll be like, hey, like, you know, when you are being honest, they say, what are your options that um, I need to go from point A to point B? And you give them options. They know that you're literally giving them the best price that you can do. um, And at the same time, they're getting that value from it. Right. Well, I, I mean, even though I couldn't help him on that particular flight leg, he knew that I was being honest. And so... He came back to me again for a different flight because he wanted a cost compare to see if I could save him on the next one. So you never want to give up. You never want to just be dismissive or brush anything off. Everything's always an opportunity. Um, That LAX to Korea, I 100% thought that I was never going to be able to sell that. That man paid $341,000 for that flight on a global. Just point A to point B, and he needs to get there now. It was insane. Because they have to do... Um, yeah, what's kind of the process for the global stuff when you're trying to... Um, from global trips, when you're trying to get from point A to point B for the clients on, the, um, on your end? They had to do... Well, for my end, there's not a whole lot, but I'm still involved in the whole process because, you know, at the end of the day, it comes down to what it's going to cost and how quickly it can get done. If they're going through me, then I'm I'm the face of the trip. I'm the one communicating everything, and I, I've got communication on both sides. So... I'm hearing the client's needs. I'm also trying to get a realistic sense of how this can be executed from the operator. Um, that particular trip was an absolute nightmare because the guy was like, I want to go at 1 o'clock in the morning. And I'm like, well, we're not going to have a permit by then. Like, In fact, the only plane that was available to do it, I didn't even have – it was Labor Day weekend. There, there were no ultra-long-range jets. Um, he would originally requested a BBJ. There was There were none. There were none available, so then I'm like, okay, so we start looking at, like, globals or, like, a 550 or 650. Um, there was one global that was actually out in New York, and that was available to do it. But think about all the extra cost involved there. To move it. So we brought the plane out from New York empty to pick him up in L.A., 
there has to be a crew swap on a trip like that. Flight duties. Yep. The relief crew, they were actually not together. There was one pilot in Phoenix, and there was one in L.A. And the airline options to get them to Anchorage for the crew swap in time were no good because they had to go into Seattle and then connect to Anchorage and then duty off and be rested for, you know, 10 hours before they could take over the second leg of the flight. So I'm telling the lady, I'm like, this just the the agent that was representing this passenger. I was like, this just isn't logistically possible unless he can be flexible on departing a little bit later. And she's like, well, you know, he's not. And I said, well, I, there's no possible way to get that relief crew up there to do the crew swap in time. So I I, I don't know what else to tell you. Like, you you might have to go back to him and say, if he really needs to go, then he's going to have to be flexible within, you know, a few hours. And she's like, well, what if we what if we stick the, the relief crew on a private jet? And I laughed at her. And I'm like, well, who's going to pay for that? And she's like, my client. And I'm like, you want me to charter the other pilots up to Anchorage for the crew swap? I'm like, you have any idea how much that's going to cost? Yeah. And she's like, it doesn't matter. He just needs to go. Yeah, that's the best part about uh, just basic economics, right? It's the what is the value of a product for somebody. It's if How much I'm are you willing to pay? Right? Everybody's sitting there in the room, and they all have uh, paper that is like, you know, like little kid paper, and you're supposed to color in the lines. But guess what? I'm the only guy in the room with colored pencils. They all just have the paper. Guess what now those colored pencils are worth? Those pencils are worth a million bucks. Yep. And so that's why it's, it's 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 fascinating, you know. People need to get from point A to point B, and then that's where you come and you say, "I can do this," you know. No matter what's going to happen, is if they have the means to do it, let's make it happen. I mean, but it seemed impossible because I thought there's no way. I'm like this. This is going to add another like sixty thousand dollars to <laughs> the trip. Um, but she was just like, Trisha, the cost is no object right now he just needs to go and once she like really drilled that into my head I was like okay so I found a Falcon 50 that was transient in Van Nuys and the pilot that was hanging out in LA idle he went to the airport he got on the plane they flew over and picked up the second pilot in Phoenix and then they went up to Anchorage and they got there and they dutied off and they um Showed back up at the at the airport the next morning after the first leg of the flight had been completed, and um, the pilots that the flew leg one they made sure that you know everything the fuel and everything catering all that was taken care of. All the other guys had to do basically was just show up and take off because we were on such a tight timeline. I mean, they literally it wasn't like they dutied on and like an hour later, like after you know pre-flighting it wasn't like that they they came to the plane and they got on the plane and they were like wheels up within like 15 minutes so um very very tight timeline um and then of course they had a terrible headwind going over to korea and so they ended up getting in like 40 minutes later than they were supposed to and this guy had a meeting and um but it ended well got a lot of positive feedback um still still shocked that that got pulled off just because it was one of those like seemingly impossible things and just it's crazy, like you said, like, what's the value of, so if you need something so badly, like, really, can you, for somebody that has that kind of money, it really didn't matter. There was, the cost was not even a variable. It was just a matter of, it just needs to get done. 
So you do you do see that, but but you do also see people that try to not be frivolous. They try to be cost conscious, um, and I respect that because how do you you know how do you maintain your wealth if you don't ever actually care about what you're spending? So. I try to keep that in mind. You know, a lot of my friends that don't know much about the industry, they think, oh, you know, it must be easy to, like, rip these guys off. And oh, I'm like, yeah. no, it, that's not really how, how it is at all. It's These are still people that are still watching every penny go out. Yep. Um, oh, yeah, especially when you get to high level in business of any sort. they It's down to every nickel. They're like, okay, where's where's X amount going the day I spend it into the day it's done and being invested? You know? Oh, yeah, try flying a CFO. I've got a couple of those guys, yeah. you know, hedge fund guys, guys that, I mean, Money is money and numbers of their life. That's, and I don't know if you were interested in knowing what the biggest um, type of, you know, clientele is, but it's it's a lot of, you know, finance guys. Yep, you know. guys who are applied. I have a buddy, um, he's doing applied math at USC, right? And I'm mm-hmm. like, okay, if this guy can really implement that in some company someday, those are the guys that end up on the private jets. They're the ones that are making way more than the big time lawyers are. Why? Because their business, when it comes down to it, is numbers. If you can put in, you know, buy low, sell high, and that's the the end end game for everybody. Yeah, that's what we see the most of. We see, you know, finance guys, we see um, entrepreneurs, and then professional athletes and celebrities. That's really the bulk of it. Um, But going back to the jet card thing, like I said, you know, that's – I'm sorry if I'm coming off as tangential, but just to kind of explain that a little bit more, I mean, really, that's been one of the biggest obstacles for me is kind of dissolving that misconception about brokers being more expensive or jet cards being a better fit. Um, For a lot of people, they really aren't. They really are overspending. And that's fantastic. So what you're saying now is that you think you have or, or you do know you have a different perspective on how people can be flying efficiently. Yeah, I, if they would just give me the chance to even, I think a lot of people, they don't want to bother asking for a quote because maybe they feel, I don't know if they feel obligated or they just don't want to bother with it because they're comfortable for, from where they're at. And I kind of get that. I mean, when I'm not in the mood to be sold something that I don't think I need, then I don't want to deal with it. So I get and I respect that. And that's why I'm constantly coming up with ways to fine tune my approach. And you have to know your audience. You have to know who you're talking to and how you think you can get through to them the best way. But, you know, my advice to anybody that's an aspiring broker is, you know, don't actually be overly salesy. Don't have too much of a pitch. Just get comfortable with the person, feel them out, understand who they are, what their needs are or might be, and then slowly try to capitalize on that because it's just, it's a very, it's a tough industry. It's a very competitive, as you know, just with other brokers. Yep. I mean, but every time, it's not that there's more and more people flying private every day. Yeah. There aren't. There's really a finite amount of people that are flying private jets. And you're vying for their attention. So I have to bank on other people screwing up, other operators, other brokers, and losing a client. And then that's another opportunity for me to to gain more business win the war not the battles you know yeah i mean that's really and i would never poach or steal but if there's somebody that's unhappy with where they're at that's basically how you end up with a lot of these people is they just they are discouraged or disenchanted with the experience that they've been having and and so they they're ready to try something new or at least see hey can this person find me something better you know, price wise. 100%. And 
yeah so it's just it's just a matter of getting people over that hump um i think um this would be a great time to kind of move on to the abstract concept. So what does it mean for you to be a broker? Like your everyday life, just as you as an individual, your role in aviation, what does it mean to be a broker? Like, if that makes sense. Um, like when you, when you view yourself as what you do every single day, aviation, right? Like people who are pilots, they go, my job is to get people safely from point A to point B in my aircraft that I'm flying as a broker. What is kind of like the definite, what is the definition of a broker is a great way to put it. I mean, really, you're just kind of the, you're like the vessel acting as, you know, a perfect connection between a client and their private aviation needs. Not every operator can do that. They can, um, if they want to, if they don't have something in fleet and they decide to outsource it, um, but brokering, I mean, you really, I'm looking at the bigger, I'm looking at, I'm looking at hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of planes. Operators, I think they're more focused on in-fleet options because yep. that's. Yep, it's, it's you're up top, right? You're looking at the huge picture, trying to make things happen. And then you have the operators that are specifically looking down to the individuals, the planes, and you're, you're the mass coordinator. I feel like I have an aerial view there of. All of it. No, Whereas no the operators, <laughs> they have, they have, um, it's a little bit smaller of, of a view and a little bit, maybe, I don't want to say that they have less resources in finding the best aircraft, but my experience was that is the case. Now that I'm a broker, I have, I have relationships with operators all over the country that some of the people, the West Coast operators out here, don't even know about they don't even know they exist but because i've got stuff you know all over the place i'm not just focused on any one region i mean i live here but i actually have very few clients on the west coast i have a lot of clients that are based in the east coast or the athletes are you know wherever their their team's based and sometimes they get traded and they move around um <laughs> interestingly enough i don't actually have a ton of california clients even though i'm here um, and that's a goal of mine as well to make more face-to-face -face contacts with people locally and, and do more pros live prospecting that way. But yeah, I mean, on a daily basis, what does it mean for me? It's, it's basically, um, I'm meeting people's needs as far as finding them that seamless aircraft fit, but I, but I'm also, I'm also developing relationships. That's huge for me. That's why I knew I would be good at this because I do have a love for people and, um, I haven't. I have an easy way with people. I can usually get anybody to talk to me and feel comfortable. Um, Being and the face of the, uh, you know, because you're the face, like you said, between the client and the operators and you make everything happen. How do you personally in your life deal with pressure that comes from that? Like what, what are ways you kind of, because obviously work life isn't everything. What are ways that you can kind of just decompress? Um. I mean, spending time with my husband, my, my kids, um, exercise, I guess. Those are good, good options caps. for you to just I get out and I get love, away. I love bourbon. I like to have myself a little bourbon at night sometimes. Um, you know. And the, cl the client as well is also looking to you as a the – even though they, they, they think you're kind of the leader of the operation because technically you are um, in the aspect of coordinating everything. Um, what – who in your life have you seen that you've kind of molded your perspective around in the aspect of leadership? 
someone that because you, you do a lot of coordinating time management um, operating with different systems and that takes a lot of leading principles what is who has been a, a influence in your life to um, help develop you as a as a person into what you're doing now I wouldn't say I mean any one person specifically I think as you go through life it's totally a journey personally and professionally you encounter different people who I mean you you get key takeaways from how they behave as um, a person and as a professional and um, when you see how that's applied and it's relatable that's valuable and you can harness that and apply that in your own life and so I I mean definitely lots of people have been influenced by just just by talking to people and hearing their ideas and their thought process and um, I mean, I certainly, you don't know everything when you start, you only know what you know, yeah. right? So I'm going off of like who I am as a person and how, how things would be done naturally according to who I am. But then you meet people that sometimes, um, offer a slightly different perspective or a different angle or a different approach that might seem more efficient or helpful it's funny too, and then you hear other people, and, and you think, "Gosh, their method seems so unconventional," but it works for them. So it's like I said, you get a, I get a key takeaway from everybody that I come in contact with, whether it's I know for sure that method would not fit with my personality type, yep. or actually that's a really good idea and that could totally increase my efficiency as a working person in this industry. So all kinds of people, pilots, owners of. Um, aircraft themselves owners of charter companies um i mean everybody what are some characteristics of people in your life that are good at what they do because obviously you, you work with a lot of different people in aviation you know the good ones in the aspect of what they do skilled talented and you know the ones who aren't what are some characteristics of the people that you admire in aviation i think for anybody to be successful in any aspect of aviation, you have to be able to maintain a sense of calm. If you are in control of an airplane, you have to be able to maintain a sense of calm and still act. Um, certainly, we never want to think about a pilot panicking in the air because that just wastes precious time when there's a problem. Um, you have to be able to you know, go through a checklist and think clearly. And when you panic, that clouds your ability to do anything safely or efficiently. Um, and then as far as, you know, if you're looking at, um, I don't know, I mean. It's a good question. makes you think a little bit. <laughs> what was the, uh, well, an aspect of keep, keeping the thought process as, going. As a broker, you have to be calm because there are times that you're going to get you're going to get a lot of flustered. You're going to get a lot of grief from an unhappy client. And it could be something, it usually is something entirely out of your control. Weather, mechanicals, um, some, sometimes the, the crew screws up and they go to the wrong FBO and the, the passengers of the other one. And they're like, where the hell is my airplane? You are the face of the trip. You are the one representing everything. So you get, you get the grief. And when things go well, you get the glory. But there's always going to be grief because things do go wrong. And you have, to be, you have to be able to 
not let your emotions get too involved. Now, maybe behind the scenes, yes. Like when I'm off the phone and I'm in between phone calls and emails, I'm like, oh my God, you know, and you're freaking out trying to figure out a way, how do I fix the situation yep. immediately? Um, Pulling from resources, the other people in the office, like, hey, do you guys have any suggestions on how I should go about this? And we this? do. Because That's why we work so well together. If there's a problem, like I had um, a basketball player who needed to be in his city where his team was the very next morning after Christmas. And the number two engine on the plane that we had chartered for him was having some serious issues. And at nine o'clock at night on Christmas night, they're like, we, we can't go. Yeah. And he's like, I have to be there by eight in the morning or he gets fined yeah. by the NBA. Yep. I didn't know that. I didn't know that he was actually going to get fined. Mm -hmm. So contracts. <laughs> yep. So yeah, I learned something new every day. Um, just dealing with so many different kinds of people, but it's Christmas night. I, I made 37 phone calls in 30 minutes and everybody was either flying, dutied out, or they had already sat down with their family and had, you know, a beer. Yeah. I mean, there were, there was nothing. No, it definitely reflects down to the pilots. Cause that's the, t that's literally the scenario that pilots dread, right? Is always having that go, go, go type of scenario on Christmas day. You get a call from the broker. It's like, Hey, can you come fly? And you're like, um, I'm about to eat this fantastic turkey or chicken right <laughs> there wasn't there wasn't yeah it was it was really painful be, and that's when all hands had to be on deck so I let my boss know and the two guys that started the company who they're always willing and they're on the east coast right which is actually where the flight was happening but there has been stuff that's happened you know that's in the middle of the night for them and they're always they're like we're here if you need us like if you are having a crisis and you need help we're here and that's been so amazing to have that support. If one of us is having a huge issue with a flight, we will all do what we can to help the situation get resolved immediately to preserve that relationship with our client. Yep. Um, and so sure enough, you know, that story ended okay. We did find a recovery. Um, it did actually cost more than what the client paid. And that's another thing as a broker sometimes, well, as any business owner too you sometimes have to take a hit if you want to maintain that relationship with your client so I had two options I can either pass that extra cost onto the client and say I know your plane broke and it's nobody's fault and this is what we found for you to recover it and this is what you're going to have to pay yeah. or I could have just said hey there's an upgraded plane for you and it's no additional cost to you we just need to get you to where you need to go and take the hit so I chose to take the hit and that it's not the first time that's happened with a client where I've taken a hit um, because I wanted to make sure that they trusted me and I wanted to make sure they came back to me. And they do. And then they also send referrals to me. So, you know, what's a little bit of a loss here one time if it's going to actually grow my business? Win the war, not the battle, right? Totally. Yeah. So anyway, but yeah, as far as to answer your question um, in general, you know, how what uh, maintaining a sense of calm as a broker, um, as a pilot, as, um, I mean, really anybody involved in this business, there's, it's, it's ever changing. There's always things that can go wrong. And I think that's true of almost any industry, but this is all I know. And I've seen it from so many different sides. I actually live with a part 91 pilot. Um, he, you know, is, he's actually chief pilot. So he is in charge of managing everything for the airplane. So I see a lot of different sides of the business. 
um, and we understand each other's business and it's always nice to have that extra support as well but it's also very fascinating to see how things come together from every end you know he he has seen what it's like to deal with my clients and he's has seen what I have to deal with just in general being a broker and I see what he deals with on his end you know trying to explain to um, a company that owns you know a corporate jet that's not chartered it's basically there at the executive's disposal for business meetings and these people don't know anything about aviation um so when you tell them your plane has to go down for six weeks for scheduled maintenance they're just like wait what yeah um excuse me (laughs) like well six weeks like why like are you sure can we maybe like quit the maintenance like in between halfway and go back to it (laughs) you know it's like the engines are gonna be off (laughs) yeah it's it's just interesting like i said being surrounded by so many different aspects of it in and seeing how you know people's understanding or lack of understanding affects the situation um the biggest thing you can do is just try to keep the emotional involvement out of it and and stay calm and just get it done i think that applies to both pilots and people on my side of the industry as well. And I think people in life who really get after and get it done are usually the people that bring others with them and therefore they they kind of end up becoming leaders. And so I was wondering what makes a good leader to you? Um, you have to be secure with who you are. Don't second guess yourself all the time. That's a lot easier said than done. I'm not going to lie and tell you that I still don't do that. Um, but when you present yourself to a client or a prospective client, you certainly want to come off as someone that is not second guessing anything. You want to be confident and firm and optimistic and still realistic at the same time about what's possible, what isn't possible. You know, I think people think, Oh, I'm a broker. I need to promise these people the world. Well, but things happen. Thunderstorms happen. Landing your, snapping off happens um stuff happens you still have to be real with people um to be a good leader you have to be willing to be honest you have to be willing to take like i said a loss at times if you look at the bigger picture and know that you're protecting a relationship you have with somebody that you care about working with and also being successful um then, you know, taking those those losses, that's just a sacrifice. I think that's part of becoming a good leader. Because I don't think anyone's ever just immediately a leader. I think you just, like, grow and evolve into that. And the more that you grow your business and the more clients you have or whatever it is, whatever industry that, you know, you're in, um, the more people you're around and the more you do – it just kind of show. I, I think it's. I don't know. It's like a really difficult question yeah, to answer. It's a dichotomy because there's there's principles of leadership that sometimes you have to break. You know, um, there's people who are in situations where you know this is the standard operating procedure for doing this. This is the system we have in place. But sometimes some standards come up in your uh, your daily life that you go. You know, we might have to bend this rule a little bit right now in order to get this project done. And yeah, it's not our typical way we do things. But sometimes as a leader, you have to say it's okay to change our system in order to fit the needs of the actual situation if it's legal absolutely oh yeah we have gotten very creative to make situations happen because like i said you're dealing with a type of 
clientele that has extremely grandiose expectations, and rightfully so, just because of the amount of money they're spending. But there's still people, and there still are limitations. It's still an industry that has regulations, and there are things that cannot be done. Um, and as long as those ground rules are laid, like, initially, so that people don't have, um, you know, an, a false expectation of, of what can happen, um, or certainly not, you know, something that's dangerous or risky in any way, shape or form. Um, other than that, yeah, we'll, we'll go to the ends of the earth to find ways to make things happen for people. I mean, that's what, that's what we do. That's fantastic. Um, is there anything you'd like to add to anybody who's trying to get into aviation or any, uh, things that you'd like to say to anybody who's listening to this? If you have been bitten by the aviation bug, just find a way to pursue it. There's, I've found that there are people who are so intrigued and fascinated by it, and they they can't seem to find a way to pursue it or to get more of that in their life. Um, but if you want something badly enough, like I said earlier, you find a way to make it happen because the sense of gratification that comes from that is paramount. It's good for morale. It's good for self-worth. It's good for your ability to maybe roll what you learn or experience into your ability to provide a service or be a leader in your career and different different career paths. It doesn't even matter if it's not aviation related, but there's so many things. I mean, like you know, now that you're a private pilot too, I didn't realize. I mean, I did know there was groundwork, but like I didn't realize how many <laughs> subject areas there were. Oh, there's there's actually 37. Total. Right? So Flying the plane was like the easy part. <laughs> there's this 30. <laughs> so part of with JPL Aviation, we're, we're giving out study tools for people to, to go and ta- touch on all the topics that they're going to personally need to know in their aviation training. Um, and I went through all the different sections of my private pilot training. I did research on different areas of people who also sell types of study tools. And I, I researched there's 37 different areas that people need to know and i'm by areas i mean it's a golf hole in the top of the ground and then underneath it there's a plethora of information for each one of those 37 holes i know so i know i when, when i took my check ride and he said well i see this with almost everybody but i kind of feel like he's like you're fine at weather but i feel like that's one of the weaker areas and i was looking at him like are you out of your mind like there's no way this is a weak area like i know everything that's oh, what i was thinking to myself and he's just like this is like not even the tip of the iceberg and of course i know that i think that's I one mean, of the five attitudes right the macho attitude you can <laughs> you know everything can do everything well i mean i i definitely didn't always feel that way in general about it i i i you want to be overprepared, right? Oh, yeah. For a check ride. Um, always want to be overprepared, and then it just goes more easily. Um, but the weather part really surprised me when he said that. He was just like, you know, it's something that I that I see all the time um, because people, even pilots, private pilots, don't realize how involved it is. Um, you're really only getting a snapshot, and that snapshot is actually pretty intense and layered i mean when i was like learning just the very basic you know textual weather products and i was like no that's like you really it's funny because you have to be able to work with me here you have to literally be able to zoom down to the molecules of what's happening aka heat density pressure altitude all that and then you not only have to know what's going on there you have to zoom all the way out and look at the whole earth 
from the northern hemisphere to the southern hemisphere and see that at each level on the way from all the way out aerially down to the very molecules you have to know each stage of what's happening whether that's the uh, convective cooling conve uh, the different types of fog on the ground all the way down to what's happening in that fog why is that fog forming you got to zoom all the way back out and okay, okay what areas have typical fog during which type of season why do they have fog at that type of season it's just like a plethora of information that you're going to have to know throughout your course of your training so yeah that's it's intense very... I mean I certainly did not tout myself as a meteorologist but I thought I was very well prepared for that part of the check ride and yeah I, I got pretty humbled yeah. I was like I was like I'm like did I stutter like I'm pretty sure that I answered everything perfectly and I didn't have to look anything up but yeah. Um, it just goes to show you that, yeah, it's just, just such, it's just a tiny little fraction of what there really is out there weather-wise to know. Um, so I don't even know how I got on that. I don't know. <laughs> it, just, it just happened. You know, the conversation just closed. Yeah, no, that's good. I mean, obviously we're having fun talking shop. Um, <laughs> but yeah, I don't know. I, I don't know. Like more of a closing statement. I think you were asking for mm -hmm. I don't know how I even got into that. Um, <laughs> your general, your general time in aviation how has it been? Have you had a great experience? Have you had ups and downs? Like, well, just kind of give a general statement about your time in aviation and how you've grown from it. It's been a hundred percent gratifying for me from day one. The second I opened that first textbook, um, and started reading about just the history of flight and, air support in our wars and then getting into learning about the different types of aircraft. This was actually not part of the private pilot syllabus. This is when I was in school mm -hmm. doing the bachelor's in um, aviation science. Yep. So it just was so, I just loved every bit of it. It was all so interesting to me. It was all so fascinating to me. It was like I found my place in the world. I love my friends. I love my family. I love being a mother. I get a lot of joy from all of that, but there was a piece that was missing and it wasn't until I started pursuing aviation and learning more about it and doing something with it that I felt like that sense of like wholeness. Yep. You know what I mean? I'm yeah. sure you feel that way too. hundred percent. It's every person I meet and able to get on the show for one, but just general walking around the airport and you meet new people. It's everybody at the end of the day, you have people that are competitive. They, they want to go off and start their own thing. There's the money ends of things. And, but at the end of the day, we're all aviators. We're all yeah. aviatrix, aviatrixes. We're people who enjoy aviation and, and have a, a common love for it. And that's what unites all of us as people in aviation. And I think it's so important to always step back and realize like, hey, even though I may be um, the high up in this company of in aviation and I'm trying to compete with all these other companies, at the end of the day, if you can't go off and meet with that person, have a burger and just talk about your guys' love of aviation, go to some airport with a, a cute little restaurant that everybody goes to. and Camarillo. Yeah, there you go. Cam <laughs> that's actually the one I was thinking about. So good. Uh, it's the Camarillo Airport. Or the, uh, what's the place called? Um, the, the one uh, I just I literally just talked about this yesterday, but this Oof, is, yes, this is my memory airport. now. Yeah, so yeah. <laughs> Camry Airport shout out. Um, totally, I'll put in the show notes what the uh, the name of that place is. But just get the Serrano Chili BLT, you'll be all good. There you go. So good. Or the, I actually had the blue cheeseburger. It was pretty okay, good. Okay, whatever, whatever floats your boat. <laughs> whatever works. But that that's kind of my thing. Is like at the end of the day, we're all aviators and. Do it because you love doing it, right? If, you, if you're doing it for the money, if you're doing it for um, outside circumstances, unless you love aviation, you are not going to like this industry. Yeah, you won't really be able to hang. It, it has to really be a true love because it comes with 
you know, things ebb and flow for all of us, no matter what area we're in, um, as we've seen with different economy changes, how aviation as a whole suffers or flourishes. Um, But yeah, I mean, it's, I really feel like um, aviation kind of, it sounds so cheesy, but it it really, (laughs) it really has completed who I am as a person. I filled the void. There was definitely some sort of a void there. Um, it, there's just there's a magic with flight. I think all of us that have dabbled in it know that. I mean, the first time I ever got to take off um, myself, it was just I've never had adrenaline rush like that. I look forward to that day for so many years. I just having my hand on the throttle and and rolling down the runway and and being able to be in control of an airplane. Just like yes. There was like <laughs> it was just one of those things that it doesn't compare to a lot of other things for me. A, a couple things. Yeah. Like I said, my children bring me a lot of joy. There you go. But outside of like that, yeah. I mean, flying really just kind of takes the cake. And, and really the mental activity involved is, it's just good for you. I think it just keeps your mind fresh. I mean, anybody can really have the physical skills to fly a plane. It's obviously we want our steep turns to be good and we, we want to be able to execute the maneuvers with as much finesse as possible. Um, but the physical skills required are not really all that complex. It's more being five minutes ahead of your airplane mentally, um, which I think is just a good challenge for everybody. I think it really does help keep, keep the mind, you know, in, in a, in a good place. Um, when you're not constantly learning and growing and evolving and applying information, um, you know, in a really constructive way, I think that our minds do start to deteriorate and, you know, being in my later twenties and not having worked for a long time and not having the time to have a hobby because like I was a mother and just doing, doing a lot meeting a lot of other people's needs, which is great, but I needed something that was a little bit more intellectual and I needed something for me that I, I, I needed to set a goal and enjoy doing it and then have that sense of um, completion gratification once I hit it. And so like, it's, it's been fun. Okay. So one last question, actually. You, yeah, you totally. Spurred it on. Um, what for you was the driving fire? Okay. Every single person I've had on this show at the end of the day, when we sit down and we go through all the stuff and the, the general concepts of aviation, I go, what drives you to do all this? Cause it's no easy task to just go and fly planes and do everything we do every single day. Um, say for example, in my interview with, uh, Barbara Schultz, uh, out at Lancaster shout out, she, um, she literally said, I don't know what it's like to not be doing things and people who don't do things I can't relate to. And why? Because her and her husband, Phil Schultz have like this internal fire inside of them that no matter what they go through in life at the end of the day they sit down and it just burns right they they, they don't get something done and no they can't they, they can't hate just, complacency they can't escape in the aspect of um if they don't accomplish something that they're going that they're chasing after and they tried you know i'm gonna go take a vacation i'm gonna go take a few days off if they go and take a few days off like they will have the people who are successful in life will have this burning in their soul. That's just like, I need to go do this right now. Mm -hmm. And then the only way they feel that is when they actually go and do it. And so I was wondering for you personally, but it's different for everyone, right? Um, like the last person I had on here, she said that her, um, growing up was that it was her fear strive, um, fear striving for independence that, that that's inside of her, her parents and stuff. Home life wasn't fantastic growing up um and the other guy the the air traffic control i had on here he said that personally um 
he didn't have anybody supporting him his whole entire time um, from a child all the way up. He said, I, I left my parents left me and stuff and I made myself into who I am now. Um, and he said, I didn't have anybody supporting me along the way. And it was that kind of an anger spite inside of him that just said, I'm going to keep driving every single day. And so I was wondering for you what it was to make you into who you are now. What it was that drove me to finally kind of take the plunge? To, to the thing that keeps you going every single day. When you get down, because everybody gets down, right? It's, it's a matter of what is your thing that gets you up every single morning and keeps striving forward internally? I mean, really, it, it, it's, a, it's very simple for me. It's a passion, and sometimes passions can't always be well explained. So I would definitely say that I do have a passion for aviation because I love anything relating to the aircraft. I love, they're beautiful. I mean, aesthetically, they're beautiful. I love what they can do. There is, there is a little bit of magic. I mean, not really. It's just, you know, <laughs> the theory of flight is not really magic. It's but the magic flowing over the wings that lifts it right, up, right? It's not really magic. It's just <laughs> in, in my mind, there's something magical about it. Um, because And it's something that not, you know everybody's interested in it's certainly not something that everybody can do um not not to make it sound like an exclusive thing it's just it's it's unique um not everybody's interested in it and i've always kind of marched the beat of my own drum so i never had the same interest as other little girls growing up i had like a whole collection of like die cast metal planes everything i mean i I had all the like defunct airlines i i had them they were all painted and they were always up in my room on display, and I, you know, I didn't really care for dolls and things of that nature. It was more like I just kind of had unconventional interests for a little girl, um, and it ne- never left me. But yeah, I mean, going going into adulthood, just reading about it and loving it wasn't enough. I had to be able to. I needed something tangible, and obviously, flying a plane satisfied that. Um, and the goal was to actually be doing that professionally, but once I realized that my quality of life with my children would be highly affected, I decided to kind of put that on hold and still do something that I found very gratifying, um, which is why I'm doing the brokering now, because I, I do have a love for people and for, for flying, and this allows me to still be part of that hugely on a daily basis. Um, yeah, that, that's beautiful, though, because you're the first person I've had on here that that their frame changed in the aspect of when you first got into aviation, you're like, I'm going to go be a corporate pilot. I'm going to do this. I'm going to go do that. I'm going to travel across the world and get paid to do it. But you, because you've had these different life experiences, it, what it, to me, it sounds like, it sounds like you're mentally at peace with where you are now and who you've made yourself into because of the things that have happened in your life. And, and it sounds like your driver every single day is the people around you and the people that you care about. Well, and I wouldn't be any good at what I'm doing if I didn't feel that way. If I was waking up every day with, you know, regret and remorse and, and bitterness manifesting in me that I'm not flying for a living, then I, I would be no good at, at growing the business that I have right now. So I'm totally at peace with it. And I do enjoy it. It's not like it's a substitute for for the flying it's something totally different but it allows me you know to do something that i still totally love and enjoy um and i enjoy the relationships i've made along the way that's a huge part for me like i really i'm grateful for organically creating these relationships with clients and they're people that um that mean a lot to me and i love taking care of them um and it's 
allowed me to be with my family more and still absolutely be 100% delving into aviation on a daily basis without having to physically be gone. People want to challenge, but they're also reward. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. Anyways, well, um, JPL Aviation, thanks for coming on today. Thank you so much for having me. That was super fun. Of course. And uh, JPL Aviation is where leadership and aviation take off.